following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. $147 million. That was the bill for Prince Charles and Lady Diana's so-called fairy tale wedding back in 1981. 750 million people from all four corners of the earth tuned in to watch this majestic display of regal romance unravel before their eyes. The main attraction, of course, was the princess. 10,000 pearls were embroidered into her ivory dress. A diamond-spangled tiara graced her head and a, a gold-clasped sapphire rested on her finger. She was the centerpiece of the occasion, the crown jewel of her noble husband, the most beautiful woman, according to many, that ever married into the royal family. Charles looked almost plain in comparison to his stunning bride. Sure, he had his fair share of expensive attire on too, but you know, nobody would question the fact that everyone came to see Diana. In fact, this is the case with all our weddings, really, isn't it? You know, even if the groom gets all spruced up, polishes his shoes, combs his hair, puts on a pristine tuxedo. At the end of the day, when the bride walks down that aisle, you know for a fact that all eyes will be riveted upon her. Well, the 45th Psalm is a wedding album of another royal union. Nobody knows for sure who the happy couple were. Some say uh, Solomon and the Shulamite. Others say Hezekiah and Hepzibah, but you know the reality is we don't actually know because the text itself doesn't uh, tell us. We know who wrote the psalm because the inscription says that one of the sons of Korah, that is the temple choir of the old covenant, appended it for the choir master himself. We know what kind of psalm it is because the inscription calls it a love song, a romantic ballad designed to eulogize this newly wed couple. But best of all, we know who the psalm is ultimately about. Because the marital ceremony depicted here, friends, is but a type and a shadow of the holy matrimony between the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. The father gives her hand in marriage, the son takes her hand in marriage, and the spirit captures the occasion for all generations to see. The photographer is the pen of a, a ready writer who catalogues the pomp of the occasion, the, the bride's fine array and the charm of her attendance. And yet here's what I want you to see, that unlike the weddings of this world, both royal and common, it is not the bride who takes center stage here, but the groom. It is the queen and not the king who is the main attraction. He is the prized possession of his lover. He is the one upon whom all eyes are riveted. Jesus, then, 
is held forth before your eyes this evening. And the Spirit's call to you, the church, in this marriage melody, is as follows. Forsake all and worship the God-man, your king and husband. Forsake all and worship the God-man, your king and husband. And you'll see this under very, uh, two very simple headings. Number one, His Royal Highness in verses 1 to 8. And then number two, Her Royal Highness in verses 9 to 17. First, His Royal Highness in verses 1 to 8. The inspired writer is clearly overwhelmed at the opening scene of this wedding, isn't he? As he gazes upon this vision of His Royal Highness, whom the Spirit is showcasing before him, his heart is so overflowing, so abounding with love and joy, that he cannot but write the things that he sees. The reality is, of course, that it was the Spirit himself who compelled the poet to put pen to paper. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, says the Apostle Peter. But man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophets of old were born along to speak the word of Christ, which bears witness to the person of Christ by the Spirit of Christ. And it's in this vein that the psalmist begins his work. Notice that he writes first of the grace of His Royal Highness in verse 2, second of the glory of His Royal Highness in verses 3 to 5, and then third of the government of His Royal Highness in verses 6 to 8. First, the grace of His Royal Highness. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Here is Jesus, the man, in all of his surpassing beauty. Not that this beauty was of an outward form like Saul, the son of Kish, who towered above his contemporaries in both stature and appearance, but rather that it was the secret man of the heart, the adorning of his person with the graces of the Spirit, the attractiveness of a sanctified character. The prophet writes that there is no form of comeliness that we should desire him. But the poet responds, yet there is a frame of character that we should delight in him. The lips of Christ glisten with the balm of grace. From the mouth of Solomon came the wise proverbs, but here is a wiser than Solomon. It was said that not one word of Samuel's fell to the ground, but the word of Christ drops down like dew from heaven. Out of his holy heart and through his pure and undefiled lips flowed living streams of sound doctrine. He never once sinned by the slip of the tongue. He was, in the words of the Apostle James, the perfect man who being able to bridle his tongue could conduct and control his entire body. Consider the fact that even the enemies of Jesus were disarmed by his way with words. On one occasion when the Sanhedrin sent out a squadron of the temple police to bring the Lord back in cuffs, upon their return to their masters who had sent them, 
After having sat under a series of sermons unlike anything they'd ever heard in the synagogue, they responded when being pressed for the reason of their mission's failure with these words, never a man spoke like this man. They were quite literally disarmed by his way with words. You see, he wasn't the walking, talking dictionary of rabbinical speculations that so many of the scribes of his day were. Let's be honest, it's kind of boring, isn't it, when the preacher gets up and he starts quoting this author and that author, uh, this scholar and that scholar, this writer and that writer. Well, you know, Chris Austin said this and uh, uh, John Calvin said that and John Owen says this. Let's be honest, most sermons that kind of go on that way are a bit boring, aren't they? We don't need to know that the guy's a walking, talking dictionary. Well, you'll, you'll be glad to know that Jesus' sermons were never boring. Why? Well, because he didn't receive his inspiration and authority from men, but from his Father in heaven. For this reason, says the psalmist, his royal highness received God's eternal blessing because his speech was full of grace. First, his grace, and then second, his glory. The same one whose speech is ever gracious carries the sword on his or in his sheath. The carpenter's son is also the conquering son. The king of grace is also the king of glory. He is the church's champion who rides forth valiantly in battle. He wages his warfare through the preaching of the word. Out of his mouth, writes John, as we've read in the apocalypse, proceeds a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, of course, when Jesus walked the earth, it's kind of easy to conceive how that may have been the case. After all, he was with us in the flesh, preaching to his contemporaries. Furthermore, we understand that one day our Lord Jesus will return and quite literally destroy and slay his enemies. But what about this present age in which we live when the Messiah is no longer with us in bodily form? Well, it's important to understand that for as long as our Lord is absent in the flesh, his ministers are his mouthpiece. The means that the Messiah is using to bring all of his enemies under his feet is none other than gospel ministry. That is how Christ wages war with his enemies in the present dispensation. Let me put it this way. The warrior is Jesus, the mouthpiece is the minister, and the sword is the word. Or the archer is Christ, uh, the bow is the preacher, and the arrow is the gospel. And here's what I want you to understand in all of that. As the kingdom of God is advanced through the church in this world, as the Son of God gallops, gallops into hostile territory to do battle, and as the Spirit of God drives the sword of the word into the hearts of sinners, rebels are turned into subjects. Enemies into friends and sinners into saints. That's much more majestic and glorious than any kind of carnal and earthly battle, isn't it? The fact that he subdues hearts to himself. So I ask you this evening, has the king of this psalm conquered your heart? Have you been subdued and arrested by His grace? Have you surrendered to His rule? Or are you still living in willful and consistent disobedience to His laws 
and His decrees. How do you respond when Christ wields the sword through the ministry of His pastors? How do you respond when the arrows that fly from this pulpit prick your consciences and convict you of sin? Do you resist the Holy Spirit? Do you refuse to submit to the reign of the sovereign? Be careful, because the same sword is able both to slay as well as to save. There's no doubt in my mind that if I saw this kind of uh, armed figure advancing toward me in the ancient world with his armaments drawn, I would fall down upon my knees, surrendering, say, spare me. Well, how much more then when we hear the preaching of the gospel, that when Christ himself speaks to us through the word, should we fall down upon our knees and cry out, save me, Lord. Save me, for you are mightier than I. First, his grace. Second, his glory. And then third, his government. The valiant man of verses 1 to 5 is the very God of verses 6 to 8. The love song at this point hits a monumental shift. It, it switches from adoring Christ in his humanity to admiring him in his divinity. The psalmist points to this king who gallops forth in such stately splendor and he cries out with exuberant praise, Forever and forever is, O God, your throne of The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter that is right. The government of the God-man is eternal, and the government of the God-man is upright. He hates lawlessness, but he loves righteousness. And it is for this reason, it is therefore that his God anoints him with the oil of gladness. Now, if you've been paying attention, which I hope you children especially have, then you'll have picked up a kind of paradox in what I've just said. For on the one hand, we said that this king is God, but then on the other hand, we're saying that it is God who's anointing God. So how is that possible? Well, the answer lies in the distinctions. You see, just as the Lord Jesus is both God and man, and so we ought to distinguish between the two natures, although they are united in one person, even so, track with me, is God both Father and Son, and so we ought to distinguish between the persons, although they're united in the one nature. Now, you're all ready to write a dissertation on the subject. In other words, verse 7 is saying that God the Father anoints God the Son with the oil of gladness in His humanity, and because of His perfect obedience therein. The Father is in view, the, the Son is in view, but where the Father and the Son are, there is the Spirit also. He is signified in the oil with which the Son is anointed. He is the Spirit of joy and of gladness, the promise of the Father to the Son, the one who shines the spotlight upon Christ and therefore exalts Him above His companions. He is the Spirit of Jesus the sweet-smelling aroma of Christ, the fragrance in verse 8 which is diffused from the king's garments in order to woo his bride to himself. So we see this glorious God-man's grace, his glory, and his government. Up until now, the psalmist has 
fixed our gaze on his royal highness in verses 1 to 8. But then he turns our attention to her royal highness in verses 9 to 17. I want you uh, fellas to imagine that you've just married a beautiful young lady. Now, for some of us, that's not too difficult because we already have at some point or another. But if you could all just track with me whilst I give the illustration. The ceremony's finished, and uh, you get into the back of the limousine to drive off to the hotel. And uh, the marriage ceremony went very well, uh, better than you expected. And, and now you're anticipating spending the rest of your life with your newly uh, beloved. There you are, sat in the back of the car, uh, dreaming about things that are to come, holding her hand. And suddenly, as you're driving along, she, she turns to you with a dead serious look in her face, and she says this, I want to go home. What? I don't understand. We're, we're off to our honeymoon location, and then, and then on to spend the rest of our lives together. What do you mean? I want to go home. But... Sweetheart, uh, we're, we're married now. We've, uh, we've said the vows. You've taken my name. Look, the, the rings that we're wearing, they, they bear witness to our inseparable union. I want to go home. I want to go back to my parents' house. I might have your name now, but I don't want to live with you all the time. I want to go back to my old boyfriend's. I might be wearing your ring, but I don't want to be faithful to you. I'll come and see you now and then, I promise. But for the most part, would you just let me live my life as I please, as though you didn't exist? Now, let's be honest. If such a thing were to happen, it would be a scandal, a massive outrage, wouldn't it? The idea that a newly wed wife would treat her husband in that kind of way is almost unthinkable. And yet, friends, is this not the very same way in which you and I have so often treated the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, and our husband? How often have you said to the Son of God in your innermost being, just let me go off and enjoy the world for a while, Lord. I know I have your name now, but I don't want to be with you all the time. Or let me go back to those old pleasurable sins I used to commit and that my friends commit. I know I've been united with you in holy baptism, but I don't want to be loyal all the time. Well, then there's the worst of all. I'll come and see you now and then, I promise. I'll attend church on Sunday. I may even make it to the odd prayer meeting. But for the most part, Jesus, would you just let me live my life as though you did not exist? Oh, you've never uttered such diabolical words aloud, I'm sure. But friends, have not our actions so often betrayed our hearts in this matter? How treacherous are we to our king and husband? How scandalously do we treat the one who has condescended in love to become one spirit with us? Instead, the church's calling is to forsake her past, to forget her people, to give up her possessions, all for the sake of him who loves her and washed her in his own precious blood. 
The Spirit is calling to you today in verses 10 and 11. He's saying, listen and take heed. Perk up your ears and pay attention. Forget your people. Forget your father's house. Forget all your former ways and desires. And in so doing, you will beautify yourself for the groom's arrival. Are you a Christian? Well then, since he is your Lord and your husband, worship him. Adore him. The illustrations in the former verses of the God-man's grace, his glory, and his government now give way to the imperative in verse 11. Spirit calls the church to respond to what she has seen by chiming in with the hymn writer's chorus, fairest of all the earth beside, chiefest of all unto thy bride, fullness divine in thee I see, beautiful man of Calvary, to forsake all and to worship this God-man. That's Her Royal Highness's calling in verses 10 and 11. And then there's Her Royal Highness's court in verses 12 to 15. In her court, you'll notice that the princess receives gifts from the wealthiest of nations. She's clad with the most beautiful of dresses and she's accompanied by the fairest of virgins. And all of these adornments come as a result of her commitment to Christ. When the bride forsakes all for love's sake, she gains all for heaven's sake. Her unrelenting devotion to her husband is a witness to this world filled with sinners. And when they see how zealous she is for Christ, she woos sinners to join in her worship. And in so doing, she inherits the wealth of the nations. And the Messiah's beloved treasures her husband's commandments in her heart. When she seeks to uphold the pure doctrines of the gospel. When she sounds forth the message of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. When she exalts the triune God and adorns the gospel with the fullness of grace's virtues. She clothes herself with garments of righteousness. Her robes are interwoven with gold. And finally, when the queen upholds what is pure and right and just when she is committed to obeying her king in every aspect of her life. Many numbers are added to the church and she is accompanied by the fairest of virgins. You see, if it's impressive that Diana had 10,000 pearls embroidered into her ivory dress, how much more impressive is it when the church weaves 10,000 graces into her gown, when she beautifies herself, with good works for her Lord. Her Royal Highness is calling in verses 10 to 11, her court in 12 to 15. And then finally, I want you to notice her crown in verses 16 and 17. Here the wedding poem reaches its climax in the concluding benediction given to the newly wed couple. And this benediction comes in the form of two pronouncements. One, that the marriage would be blessed with many royal children, in verse 16. And then two, that the king's name would be remembered through all generations in his church, in verse 17. The first blessing ought to remind you of the covenant promises that God has made to his people from the beginning. As far back as Genesis 13 and verse 17, the Lord said to Abraham, I will make your seed as the dust of the earth. 
so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then would your seed be numbered. How many of you children have ever been to the beach? Now, when you've been to the beach, have any of you ever tried to count every grain of sand in the bucket? That would take you a very long time just to count a bucket's worth, wouldn't it? Well, here we have in the Bible a promise that the descendants of this queen, that the members of the church will be as the number of particles of dust on the earth. Grains of sand, stars in the sky, so innumerable in their number that one could never really count them. And this promise is fulfilled in that the bride of Christ bears an innumerable brood of regenerate children by the seed of Christ's word. You see, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the mother of us all, gives birth to a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation which will inevitably grow to such heights of glory that someday soon it will fill the entire earth. More than any man could possibly number. We often speak, don't we, of a a happily married couple being blessed with many children. You couldn't get any more children than this. Christ and his bride, the church, will be blessed with such And then the second blessing reminds us of another aspect of this covenant, which we often call the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7 and verse 9, the Lord says to King David, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And once again in verse 17, we find this covenant promise being fulfilled in the church. How? Well, in the fact that Christ preserves, protects, and prospers his bride throughout all generations because it is in her that he has placed his royal and majestic name. Once again, friends, these promises are fulfilled in the church. So, Antioch Presbyterian Church, bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, What are you doing to make yourself beautiful for your groom's arrival? If you say to yourself, well, I I don't really know how I'm supposed to do that. Well, here's a start, according to these verses. Fix your gaze upon him. Because it's as you admire his beauty that you yourself will be transformed into his glorious image. See for yourselves how altogether lovely he he is. Admire the grace of his humanity, the, the glory of his divinity, the government of his power. Fall down upon your knees today, this evening, in the quiet time of your own house. Fall down upon your knees and commit yourself afresh to forsake all for love's sake. And to gain all for heaven's sake. The Spirit's call to you today from this passage is worship the God-man, your king and husband. Forsake all and worship him. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for the 45th Psalm and how we find here a marital ceremony between two two happily married uh, people. We don't know who exactly they were. That information has been lost in history. 
But we do know what is important and what we need to, do, uh, need to know. And that is that here we find under a type and a shadow the holy matrimony between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. We pray then that you would help us, that you would uh, constrain us to see Christ in all of his majestic splendor, that as we gaze upon him through the means that you have given us in this public worship service, as we gaze upon him in our private devotions and in the good works which we ourselves and others perform, that we might be transformed, that we might be beautiful in preparation for his arrival. Help us then to apply these things to our lives, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.